Well, we'll look at just a couple small things in the book of Deuteronomy, and then we'll be looking at the book of Revelation. Um, th- this is something that spoke to me because, uh, you know, um, in my family, we're in a time of transition. We just moved to Prince Albert. Uh, I think we're always in a time of transition. People are in a time of transition because we live in a world that's always changing. And people are always changing. So here, here's, a, here's a word that was really meaningful to me. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 6 and 7. So here's, here's Moses, like the prophet of his generation, a great sage, like a, a, a heroic leader. And he's speaking to a younger generation of the people of Israel before they go across the Jordan into their inheritance. And uh, he's not only speaking to them, but to, to uh, Joshua also, specifically. And this is what he says. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble. Yahweh, your God, is the one who's going with you. He's not going to fail you. And He's not going to forsake you. And then it says in the next verse, Then Moshe called to Yehoshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong, Joshua. Be courageous. You are going to go with this people into the land which Yahweh swore to their fathers to give them. And Joshua, you're going to give it to them as an inheritance. Yahweh is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He's not going to fail you or forsake you. So don't be afraid. And don't be dismayed. And... That's powerful because Joshua is a picture of Yeshua, our ultimate leader, our great hero, our king. And it's powerful to think that like he's gone ahead of us. He's, he's trumped Satan. Like he broke the power of sin. And you know what Paul even wrote? He abolished death. Do you remember the abolition of slavery? We've all read about that in United States history. Slavery was abolished. In one day, it was legislated out of existence. It did not work. It, did, it wasn't there anymore. And then there was a cleanup act where it was removed from the nation. Death has been abolished. For believers, there is no such thing as death in Yeshua. Wow. And I just, it means so much to me. In Hebrew, what's the word for, chaz- for be strong? Sorry, I get them mixed up. Chazak. That's right. Chazak. And then he says, and be, be courageous. The emats. It means like be stout-hearted. Like be firm. Hold, hold your course is the idea there. I was reading this to Tirza this week and I was thinking, okay, how can I demonstrate this to Tirza? So we put her little, her little puppy, Mr. Huggles, on the bed and then we ran out of the room and they said, we're leaving Mr. Huggles right now. We're forsaking Mr. Huggles. And he was there all by himself. We just left him there all by himself. And then later I said, Tirza, did you see how we did that to Mr. Huggles? Yahweh will never do that to us. He's never going to walk away from you. He will never walk out of the room and leave you by yourself. He's not going to let you down. He won't forsake you. And people, people let us down. People walk away. People fail us because as the children of Adam and Eve, we are total failures aside from His grace. That's where the gospel comes in, right? But I, I'll share with you on a personal level. Like I, I think if I have one fear in my life, it's a fear of losing my loved ones. Because I've had people in my past that I really loved and then they weren't in my life for whatever reason. People that I was attached to and then they were gone. And it's just, when you love deeply, it's really hard. And it's like, what if I love another person? What if this person walks away or dies or, or is gone for whatever reason? And it's hard and it hurts. And it's like, that's the biggest fear that I wrestle with. And I can tell myself, you know, if someone dies... 
they have eternal life in Yeshua, you know, believers, and I'll see them again. But that doesn't sometimes help, to be honest. It doesn't. I still feel that fear. So that, that's a word. Um, that's a word for me. I want, I want to speak it publicly, but that's a word for, for all of us. Do you know why Moses... Okay, you know why, like, when the Holy One says, don't this or don't that, he says that because we will naturally do that. That will be our first response, right? So, like, what would be an example? Like, okay, the Holy Spirit wouldn't speak personally to me and say, do not apply mascara to your eyelashes because I don't put on makeup. I have no natural proclivity to applying makeup to my face. All right? So he just wouldn't say that to me. Now, would he maybe, what would be something that he'd be more probable to say to me? Maybe like, don't speed. Because, you know, sometimes I like to get somewhere by a certain time and it's tempting to break the law and speed. Okay, so, so that's an example. The things he says to us, he says because as human beings, we're going to have a tendency towards that. So in a time of transition, why would he say, guys, don't be scared. Guys, don't freak out. Don't panic. I don't know, have, you any, have, you, have any of you ever been lost? Like in the forest or even in some foreign city or something? Have any of you actually felt the emotion of panicking? Like, it's an overwhelming feeling. And it can make you do really crazy things. My younger brother, when he was 16, hitchhiked out to the Wildcat Hills, the wilderness area, like east of here, several hours. And he just went hiking in the bush for several days. And at one point, he, I think he got disoriented. And he thought a moose was chasing him. And he said he just lost it. He panicked. Like, he never panicked before. And he just ran. And he ran and he ran and he ran. And um, he found, a, like, a stream that was kind of like a little waterfall. And he jumped in and just went shooting down the stream. And uh, anyway, it's a really long story. But it just goes to say, like, when we give ourselves over to certain emotions, we go nuts. And we do really dumb things. And Moses is saying, guys, like, you're going to face challenges. It's going to be tough. Hold your course because you know who's with you. Um, I uh, don't know why I'm saying that except like I feel like that's something that he's underscoring to us today. In uh, Deuteronomy 31 verse 9, this is cool, it says Moses wrote the Torah, he wrote it all out, and then he entrusted it to two specific groups of people. It was like, it was like their special responsibility. It was their sacred charge. He gave it to the Kohanim, who were the priests, and he gave it to the elders of Israel. I just, I wondered on a practical level if that doesn't apply to us. Like, you have the holy word of God in your hands. In English, no less. Although some of us have Bibles that are half English and half Hebrew. That's really, that's really special too. But we have it in our hands. And I can't help but imagine, can you imagine like Moses, the sage of his generation, giving that to you personally, as if you were a priest? giving that to you personally, as if you were an elder in Israel. That's the idea. So, you know, if, if we want to grow in our capacity as priests, representing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the universe, to, let's say, our co-workers or our neighbors, as we take his word seriously and stay in his word and apply his word, you are going to grow as a priest. And there's power in being a priest. And in, in, in that whole concept of eldership too, it, has, it connotes maturity, right? So as we grow in his word, we will also grow in spiritual maturity. And we will be solid people that, that people will come to, that, that people will depend on. That's what I get out of that passage on a, on a practical level. And um, then finally, one other thing that jumped out at me, I'll share with you from this, this uh, week's parsha. In 31 verse 17, he says like, all kinds of horrible things and troubles are going to come upon Israel. 
in verse 17, why he says my anger is going to be kindled against them. I'm going to forsake them. I'm going to hide my face from them. They'll be consumed so that they'll say in that day, isn't because our God isn't among us that these evils have come upon us. That's a hard saying. That's a really hard saying. He says this is going to happen. And he says, this is, what the, this is what people's, the nation of Israel's conclusion is going to be on that day. This stuff is happening because God isn't with us. He isn't in our midst. It's like when you, when you hide your face from someone, it has the idea of disengaging from them on a personal level. It's like, I am no longer present to you. I am no longer engaging with you on a personal level. That's the idea. And um, it reminds me of Gideon. Uh, you may remember Gideon... He was like, okay, the, there, was, there was foreign invaders who were sweeping through the land, just taking everything they wanted and trashing the place. And Gideon was hiding out like in a wine vat, threshing the wheat, so they could have enough to just survive off of. And he was hoping nobody was going to find him. And it says the messenger of Yahweh appeared to him. And he greeted him with like, like Shalom, like mighty warrior, brave man, something to that effect. Yahweh's with you. This is what this angel says to him. And like, I don't know, if I was Gideon, I would have freaked out and fallen on my face or something, you know? But he says, you know what he said? He said, if Yahweh's with us, why is all this stuff happening to us? That's essentially what he said. And you know what, you know what the angel said to him in response? Go in this your strength and save Israel. Go in this your strength. And that could be understood in one of two ways. It could either mean like, go in this your strength that I have sent you, I have given you a mission, and so you are empowered to accomplish it. Or it could mean, go in this your strength the way you just responded to me. The questions that you're wrestling with. I, I, I like that. I like that interpretation, actually. He's, he, it's like he was saying, Gideon, you are being gut honest. You are, you are seriously questioning this. You're, you're saying, if... If God is with us, why is all this stuff happening? And that's a strength of yours. And uh, that can be a strength of ours too. That's in this parish show. So, you know, as we go through life, there will be times when things will happen. And you know what? Sometimes it will be like Job's scenario where it is like, it is a mystery. We do not understand why this is happening. It's not because we did something stupid. It's not because we're living in sin. It's just happening and it's a test. And, you know, your faith will come through with flying colors by the grace of Elohim, God. But there are other times when stuff happens because His presence is not in our midst. And the, and the law of entropy is working in overtime. You know, uh, our bodies are breaking down. Sickness is hitting us. families breaking apart. Whatever. There, there are times when that happens because He's not present in our midst in the way that He could be. And, and there's a time when we're going through tough stuff to say, could it be that... I could be closer to him. Could it be that there's stuff in my life that he finds offensive or that's driving his spirit away? Uh, could, could it be that there is a cause and effect going on here? And, you know, it's not like we, we ask questions like that so that we can go on a guilt trip or feel condemnation. We ask questions like that to conclude, I'm going to go after him. I'm going to go after him. Because there's more. There's more to his presence. And uh, I want to do my life like that. I really do. I want to do my life saying like, I haven't arrived yet. There's more of his presence. And I'm going to go after him wholeheartedly. I'm going to be passionate to be closer to him. So those are the things I really felt the Holy Spirit uh, underlining to me personally and maybe to us as a community in this week's Parsha. Uh, let's look also at the book of Revelation, chapter, starting in chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. There's some pretty heavy-duty stuff in these chapters. The book of Revelation is pretty heavy duty in general. I've been giving a disclaimer and I'll, and I'll say it again. Uh, 
when it comes to the basics of our faith, the core of the gospel, and the truth of the, the Torah and its applicability to our lives, these are non-negotiables. When it comes to interpretations of eschatology, how things are going to play out in the end of days, there's some wiggle room, okay? There's room for discussion. There's room for different opinions. You can't really be dogmatic about saying, this is what this prophecy means, and this is what it's going to look like, and this is who the Antichrist is, because you don't know yet. So, you know, as I go through this, I'll try and give you him some historical interpretations of these chapters and why people made certain conclusions. I'll, I'll maybe give you some of my own thoughts also, but just bear in mind these are my thoughts. All right? So let's, uh, let's, let's go there together. Uh, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. It uh, begins with the seven plagues. So we had this series of seven seals on this big scroll that were opened, and it was like Yeshua unplan- un- un- unrolling the, the plan of the creator of the universe uh, as the years drew near for his return. Then we had like the seven shofar blasts, and they symbolized some massive disasters that hit planet Earth and that stopped evil people in their tracks and that woke a lot of people up, stuff along those lines. Um, We go on. The final series is seven plagues. Seven plagues. And it says, in them, God's fury is finished. So like the fury that God feels towards evil and crime and the abuse that happens to human beings, this stuff, when it hits planet Earth, is like the ultimate expression of how he feels. It's it's pretty heavy duty. Um, Firstly, the first one in um, 16 verse 1 and on, it says sores. And specifically, um, they happen on the people who have this sign of the beast, probably governmental system, who worship his image, whatever that looks like. So the people who go along with all this stuff, it's like it's beginning to backfire. They all get vicious sores. It kind of reminds me of the Philistines when they took the ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon and they all got hemorrhoids. That's, that's the traditional Jewish understanding. Okay, The Philistines got hemorrhoids and they were miserable and it was very uncomfortable. And um, if you can imagine a whole, like, a whole nation getting that after they make certain choices about who they're going to serve... You're beginning to get the picture. So I don't know, maybe some people are beginning to have second thoughts on that one. Uh, the second plague in verse 3 is um, the ocean systems of the earth are hit and everything in the ocean dies. That, that's going to be a wake-up call for some people. Um, planet Earth has seen some pretty serious natu- nat- natural disasters. Uh, there have been sections of humanity that have simply been wiped out in times past. And that's embedded in our, our collective psyche. We kind, of have this, we kind of have this thought, you know what, bad stuff is going to happen, but we're going to hunker down and we're going to make it. Uh, we, we human beings are immortal, basically. We're just going to keep going on. And you know, especially if you believe in evolution, you are the ultimate optimist. You believe that things are just going to keep getting better and better and better. And so that's kind of the way we think. Uh, and you know what? If you've seen some of like the apocalyptic movies that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years, you totally see that. Really. How many movies have the heroes failed and everybody just got killed on the whole planet? 
all gone, snuffed out. I haven't seen any like that, but you do see movies where people survive. It's like we hunker down and some of us make it, right? The, uh, the asteroid is split and it, cir- it bypasses planet Earth on both sides and everybody rejoices. You know, or like, um, what would be another one? Like, okay, the rich and the famous, they all buy tickets in the big ship and the big ship makes it. You know, there are always people who make it in the movies. But when this plague hits, half the world population is already going to be dead. Everything in the ocean is going to die. So like dolphins, crayfish, uh, all those wild little sea creatures we don't even know about, whales, everything's dead, okay? Like, no more salmon fishing. Salmon fishing industry, kaput. And people are going to begin realizing, we're not going to make a comeback. There is going to be no comeback. Everything in the ocean is dead. Let's, let's look at the next plague. Um, it goes on to say, not only the ocean, um, the third plague, it says, is poured out on the rivers and the springs of water. So like, you go to draw water from a spring or from the river. Or let's, uh, let's, let's say it was in Prince Albert. Where do we get our drinking water? We get our drinking water from the North Saskatchewan River. They pull it in. Can you imagine if the whole thing is irreversibly polluted? Like, that's a massive crisis, okay? So it's not just the ocean out there. It's like, it's here too. Um, for example, right? Um, that's like when people no longer have a source of clean drinking water, people go into a state of total crisis. And people die within a short period of time unless they can get water. Um, it goes on to say, why is this happening? In verse 5, it says... To, uh, to Elohim, God, you are righteous. In other words, you're right to do this. You are in the right to do this. Why? Because you judge these things because they, the, the, the uh, citizens of the system, poured out the blood of holy people and prophets. And you gave them blood to drink. And they deserve it. So this isn't going to be happening to innocent people. The, the song about we are all innocent, if you ever heard that on the radio, it's a lie, it's not true. We are all criminals, is the truth, against the creator of the universe. Some of us have accepted the atonement that he's given to us in Yeshua. Some of us have said, I don't even believe in you, or I'm going to do it my own way, and I'm just going to be a good person, and I'm going to get by. Um, for those people, he says, this is what you deserve. So we see a system in the future that is going to kill a lot of God's holy people and his spokespeople, and... Um, this is like his, his method of ex- expressing extreme displeasure at that event. Um, in the fourth one, in 69, is massive solar disruption. It says it scorches people with fire. Uh, perhaps that would be like, like incredibly large solar flares or something like that. Temperature is going to spike. Um, Situations like that can sometimes knock out electrical systems in a whole area too. Who, who's to say? You know, as we've been going through this, I haven't, I've been trying not to theorize too much about how this is going to happen. It's more just a question of like, what happens on a practical level and what can I learn from this in my life? How can I let it wake me up and galvanize me to like wholeheartedly take hold of uh, our loving creator? So that's the, uh, that's the fourth one. It goes on to say... Here's a very practical thing. It says, okay, so like people are just getting baked alive by fierce sun disrupt, solar disruptions probably. And it says, and they blasphemed the God who has the power over these things, but they didn't repent so as to give him glory. Have any of you seen that? It's like people who don't even believe in God will cuss him out thoroughly. 
but they still don't believe in it. It's just you have to blame somebody. If the, if, the, if the universe is dissolving and people are dying everywhere, well, you have to blame somebody and you just can't blame your government for that one. And, you know, you certainly can't blame your buddy or your spouse or whatever. So it's like, well, um, if there was a creator, I'd sure be mad at him right now. Because deep down inside, people know there's a creator. Atheism is a religion too. So it's the idea there. Um, I, I, what I really get out of that though is on a practical level, like, when we repent, and repent is kind of a, lit, a religious word. People don't use it in our society outside of religious circles. It means to turn around, right? If you repent while you're driving, you hit the brakes, you pull a Yui, and you go the other way. So if you can, it's basically that's what it's saying, right? When you turn around, you turn away from stuff that's wrong, and you turn to, you turn to the Creator. That's repentance. And I love that. It says that actually like, glorifies Him. It brings Him glory. Wow. So, you know, in our lives, when we turn around, when we walk away from stuff that's not cool, according to him, that glorifies him. And when we pray for repentance, for people that we're praying for regularly, that Yeshua will give them repentance, that's cool. Because what you're praying into long term is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel will be glorified. So that's a cool thing to pray for, for repentance in my life, in the lives of people that I want to see come to faith. It's the idea there. Um, goes on. Number the fifth plague in sixteen ten is darkness. It says specifically um, the kingdom of like the beast government, whatever that's going to be, will be darkened. They're going to gnaw their tongues because of pain. I I have had pretty severe pain. I remember when I had appendicitis when I was thirteen, and I was literally writhing on the floor. Have any of you, like, writhed on the floor in pain? I was like, oh, it was really, really, really bad. And my mom was like, I think we need to take you to the hospital. So, you know, we went to the hospital and I got my appendix cut out. That was, uh, what would be some other pain? Uh, if you've ever had a dentist hit a nerve that was not frozen, you, you know pain. And, I mean, when your tongue is frozen especially, you might end up gnawing your tongue. But it's like saying people are going to be in like, excruciating agony. There's going to be some very painful stuff happening. And it goes on to say, and they are going to blaspheme the God of heaven for it. Never mind repenting or being like, connect the dots. Maybe this is happening because of what we've done or who we've taken sides with. So let's just point the finger and throw some blame. Um, and it says, and they didn't repent of their deeds so that's, the, that's that one, like darkness. Um, reminds me of Egypt. Egypt just had massive darkness hit the whole country for three days. Nobody could see anything. Everyone was groping around. Um, maybe something like that will happen again. I don't know. Uh, the sixth one, it goes on to say, is um, drought. At the very least, it'll be in the Middle East. It could be global. It is so severe that the Euphrates River dries up. The Euphrates River is one of the primary water sources in the Middle East especially in countries like Iraq, uh, Syria, I think, um, countries like that. It says the whole thing dries up. Why? So that the way would be prepared from the ki- for the kings from the east. So that could be an allusion to that army that comes through and wipes out a third of the world population. That would infer that they are in a- Asian, a- Asian um, armies that originate in Asia. It goes on to say, after that, that, like... The three villains of the story, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they, um, they all start communicating something under demonic inspiration in which they gather all the governments of the world together for a massive war. 
And it says they all gather together to a place that actually has a Hebrew name. That place is called Har Megiddo. Often in English we say Armageddon, right? There are movies called Armageddon. Armageddon is a pretty well-known word. That's a Hebrew word. Har is mountain. Everybody say Har. Har, Har, Har. And um, Megiddo, is, it's a place. If, how many of you have been to the Jezreel Valley in Israel? Nazareth lies just on the north edge of the Jezreel Valley on the ridge of hills. And Har Megiddo is just to the south of the Jezreel Valley. Uh, when Napoleon came through that area, he said this would be an ideal site for a massive battle. Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Napoleon read his Bible or not, but just as a military strategist, he knew this is a very significant location. Um, and anyway, it says that this, um, these, all of these evil dudes are gathering the governments of the world together for a huge war. Who are they going to fight against? doesn't say, actually. I think it's going to be against... God himself, and maybe his Messiah coming. It does say, where does it say here? Um, yes, for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So yeah, I, I would infer that means directly against God. Um, did you notice that there's something else though? This is like a principle. There is this false prophet guy, there's probably a political leader guy, and they're speaking stuff, and it's actually not them talking, it's a demon talking through them. It is like an unclean spirit. And... Have you, ever, have you ever seen that in world history? How many of you have seen um, footage of Adolf Hitler speaking to the German people? I, I've seen footage of Adolf Hitler speaking to the German people. Wow. He was incredibly charismatic. Like, by the end of his speech, he would start, he would start kind of cold. Like, he would just be talking, and I, he was almost like fumbling for words. And then you could hear him beginning to gather steam, and his voice would pick up, and he would just become, like, fervent. And, like, before you knew it, every place in these massive auditoriums, everybody was on their feet, and they were cheering, and everybody was doing the Heil Hitler. Now, let me ask you, was that just Hitler, or was he speaking under a false anointing? He was a charismatic individual, but was it through the Holy Spirit? No. It was, it was, it was via a demonic spirit. And uh, it's saying that's going to continue to happen in people who would never think they would get swept up in lies like that will be swept up. I, I think there are a lot of lessons to learn from the World War II scenario. A civilized nation, people who you'd think had their head on their shoulders, were swept up in this like hysteria. And it's going to happen again. And it's going to be worse. Lady Gaga? Yeah, absolutely. There's a... Okay, we just referenced like a political leader. Do you think it's possible that there are pop culture figures and heroes and celebrities who have demons speaking directly through them? Like, no duh, right? But listen, when we listen to people who have given themselves over to evil and are allowing unclean spirits to speak through them, we're coming under that spirit. And when, who we listen to is who we're allied with. You realize that, eh? When Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, they allied themselves with their servant, and they, the serpent, and they, like, they thumbed their nose effectively at the Creator, eh? So, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not a separatist. I don't believe in like, just separating myself from everything in the world and world culture. I like being in touch with what's going on in the world and, and what people are talking about and stuff. But at the same time, I don't listen to certain people. There's a difference. There's a difference between watching from a distance, like monitoring with a, with a wide awake spirit, and listening and partaking and enjoying. There's a big difference. 
Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a very practical principle that we can infer from this. It goes on to say in 1617, there's a massive earthquake, probably unprecedented. It's going to be off the Richter scale. And um, if, if we read this literally, I try and read literally as much as I can. This is the great city. So whatever the capital of this whole beast government is going to be, it's going to split into three parts. How many of you have seen footage of cities, maybe in California, after massive earthquakes, where there's literally splits in streets. Buildings are split down the middle. It says this whole, and if you read this literally, the capital of the system is going to totally split. Um, That should be a sign that someone's not very pleased with what that capital uh, represents. Um, Well, it says the city, the great city. And it also says the cities of the nations collapse. So like, if you read this literally, like, massive collapse in cities, like skyscrapers gone, buildings that were built to withstand earthquakes will be overwhelmed. Um, man, I kind of, I don't usually talk like this, do I? I'm not, I'm not usually like the kind of person to talk about big disasters and stuff. I like to focus on like living here and now, growing in prayer, being there to serve our families and our community and stuff, but it's in the book, right? So I'm talking about it and I'm giving you how, how I would read it. But just know, like, you guys know I don't talk like this every week, okay? I'm not a gloom and doom preacher. But it's in the book and we want to take that seriously. Um, it goes on to say, like hundred pound hailstones come down from heaven and again, everybody's mad at God. They blaspheme him because of the, the hail. So, 16 verse 19 gives the reason for these catastrophes. Why is all of this stuff happening? Like, at this point, people are going to be realizing we are all going to die. Like, this isn't one of those apocalyptic movies where the hero comes through and, we're, and, we, and, and humanity is rescued. We're all going to die. Like, there's going to be hopelessness. People are going to be committing suicide. And... Here's something I've been learning because we have a little girl now and I love watching her because child psychology is so different. Like, children often don't connect the dots. They don't have an understanding between cause and effect. So it's like you do something, but you don't realize, if I do this, then this will happen. You know? Or you'll do something and you'll get hurt and you won't connect the dots and be like, this happened because I did something really dumb or I disobeyed or whatever. And... Uh, that's going to be happening. There's going to be a lot of that. But for those who have an ear to hear, um, it says there's a reason that this stuff is happening. And I don't know, maybe some people will connect the dots. Maybe some people will be like, this, all this stuff is the effect of a cause. What's the cause? It says very specifically in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So, Whatever Babylon the Great is, this is happening to Babylon the Great and the people who have involved themselves with her, whatever she is going to be or was, etc. Um, Just as a little note, it does say in other chapters here to offset what we're talking about, the woman representing at least some of the people of Israel, she's off in the desert, if you read this literally, and if you believe it's all happening contemporaneously, she's off in the desert being protected, supernaturally taken care of, and fed and stuff. So she's doing okay. Um, It also talks about the dragon going off to wage war against the rest of her children, who, one, keep God's commandments, and two, have faith in Yeshua. So, you know, 
It could very well, and then also have, you have the 144,000 who are going to be around doing their thing as I would read it. So there are going to be people who survive. There are going to be people who actually fare well during that period of time. They're going to have enough to eat. They're not going to starve to death. They're, um, I, I think we're all of a sudden, you know, for the people of God in that time, there are some stories in the Hebrew Bible that are all of a sudden going to become very meaningful. It's actually incredible how many times prophets supernaturally procured food or caused fresh water to spring forth or different things like that. It's going to be like, you know, hopefully, hopefully um, the creator of the universe still operates in those ways. And I believe he does. We, we've even seen that in, in our generation. So having said that, I want to look at Revelation chapter 17 and 18 where it talks about this Babylon the Great uh, figure. And we can start by looking at this word Babylon. Babylon is actually a Hebrew word, just like Harmagedo is a Hebrew word. Babylon in Hebrew, you say Bavel. Everybody say Bavel. It's B-A-V-E-L. Bavel. And it's from the Hebrew root. It's a verb, Balal. Everybody say Balal. Right? And Balal means to mix or to confuse to uh, syncretize, to uh, those, those kinds of ideas, okay? So if you belal something, you're mixing something. Actually, it's interesting because that very verb comes up in this passage in reference to Babylon. What does it say in Revelation chapter 18, verse 6? It says, pay her, referring to Babylon, back as she's paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. Uh, how, did, how did the version that Wayne read this morning say it? Give her a... Double, yeah, like a double serving or something. But anyway, and then it says, in the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. So there's that word. The Hebrew, the Hebrew word behind that is to belal, to mix. So you even hear that. Whoever, whoever penned the book of Revelation obviously was thinking in Hebrew terms and he was referencing this connection between Babylon and mixture. So that's the first thing we can take note of. Um, Bavel means mixture. Now, historically speaking, Bavel was a geographical area. Babylon was an area in Mesopotamia, in the Middle East. If you read history books today in your standard university text, it will say that Mesopotamia was the cradle of civilization. Basically, it was out of Babylon that civilization as we, ha- as we know it emerged. Before that, everybody ran around with sticks and they were naked and they ate animals with, like, and stuff. You know, like just a bunch of cavemen, basically. And then suddenly this civilization just emerged out of Babylon. And if you read history books, most of them will say, and it happened around like six, seven, eight thousand years ago or whatever. Isn't that interesting? Even history books will say there was a point in the not-too-distant past where visible civilization emerged. And before that, all of a sudden it just emerged. Before that, everybody just kind of ran around and were a bunch of cavemen, really dumb. And all of a sudden, just Babylon came out of nowhere. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Babylon came out of nowhere shortly after the Tower of Babel was built and Nimrod came on the scene and began building his world government, which was shortly after the, the, uh, the flood of Noah. So just keep that in mind if you're having conversations with people. Um, so Babylon was a, it was a country, it was a people group, and it was founded by Nimrod, who I think you're all familiar with. I think he was like the... I, I haven't memorized his genealogy. I'm sorry. I'm not that much of a Bible nerd. But he was like he was a son of like um, Ham. I think he was the firstborn of Cush or something. One of those guys in the Hamitic family line. And uh, he was a rebel. It says that he was like a 
the word there can be translated like a hero or a warrior or a hunter. He's a very like really masculine kind of guy, a real leader, and um, violent. And um, he led the people of the world at that time in building this tower so that they wouldn't be scattered, so that they could have a centralized government. And of course, Nimrod was probably going to be the leader of that government. It's the idea. Um, he was also, if he, he and his family were like kind of the people who introduced a lot of the pagan religion of that time. If you, if you read about Babylon and the religions of Babylon, they had, they had certain moon gods and sun gods, and you know, generally history would suggest that Nimrod was the guy who introduced a lot of that stuff. Um, that was the first... So that was, that was Babylon. Um, it was probably named Bavel, or mixture, confusion. Uh, we get this from Genesis 11, because remember when the languages were, were confused or mixed? That's Babylon. That's what Babylon means. A mixture, a, a confusion. That's the idea. Um, after Babylon, that Babylon became a world empire, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the first temple. And uh, after Babylon, Persia was the next world empire. Uh, the third was Greece. And the fourth was Rome. Those are the world empires. And you can read that in any history book. Uh, notably, there was an ancient prophet, Daniel, who prophesied the rise of those world empires centuries before it happened. That's a, powerful, that's a powerful proof that the prophets of Israel were correct also, actually. So um, that historically is Babylon for you. Now we're going to look at these chapters and um, it talks about you know, Babylon as a city. It says Babylon is like a, the, a prostitute, pictured by a prostitute and um, generating a lot of other prostitutes and disgusting stuff all around the planet. That's the idea there behind um, Mother of Harlots and of the Abominations of the Earth. Yeah, we'll get into that, actually. What we may want to do is, here, I will, I will give you an overview and some details, and then hold your comments, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this, okay? And that'll be cool. Now, before I even get into this, um, I'm going to give you the four main interpretations of the book of Revelation historically. There are four main ways of approaching this book. Um, there is the historic interpretation, which was the view of most of the early reformers. So the early Protestant leaders like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, they held to a historic interpretation in which the book of Revelation has been playing out since the 1-2-300s. And we'll get into more of that in just a second. That's the historic one. This thing has already been unfolding. The futurist interpretation is, I think, probably the most popular one in evangelicalism today. That holds that this stuff is going to happen in the future. Basically, all of it's still going to happen in the future. Um, and we'll get into more of that in just a second also. The third one is the preterist interpretation. Everybody say preterist. It has to do with like pre, like in the past. And in that interpretation, all of the prophecies of Yeshua and the book of Revelation were fulfilled in the first century. In that interpretation, when, um, when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, that was it. Um, the persecution that happened under Nero, the Roman emperor, that was the fulfillment of the book of Revelation and the beast and uh, uh, some things along those lines. That's the preterist interpretation. And then you also have one, I can't remember the technical term off the top of my head, but uh, it's the symbolic one. Basically in that one, this is all, this was never meant to be read literally. This is all basically like a big, big, like a big parable to give you some 
kind of to, that's like a template that you can apply to most generations, to most eras in history, to most situations. So in, in, in the symbolic one, the beast would represent any evil government. Um, and you know, certain figures like the false prophet would represent any false prophet or whatever. It's kind of the symbolic one. In the symbolic one, you kind of try and get just the, get the main point that Yeshua comes back, he wins, and it's going to be okay. I think that's how I would sum up the, the, uh, maybe the symbolic interpretation. So those are the main interpretations. I'll repeat this for you. Historic, uh, futuristic, uh, preterist, and, uh, and symbolic. So when we come to these chapters, when it, when it identifies Babylon and how Babylon falls, I'll give you, I'll give you some of these interpretations. Uh, you know, for the symbolic one, it's nice. It's really open. Basically, it can mean whatever you want because <laughs> it's, it's all symbolism. So it could represent apostate religion in general. It can represent world governments that have become like slutty, so to speak. Um, it can represent different things like that. Um, in the preterist interpretation, this is generally understood to be Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the great harlot. She fell away from God, so God judged her and destroyed her. Um, that's often how the preterist interpretation would understand this. So when the Romans came in and dis- destroyed Jerusalem, well, there you go. Um, the preterist interpretation um, is a popular one. I'll give you a little more background with this now. With pre- the preterist interpretation really came to the forefront in the 1500s in response to the Reformation. The preterist view of the book of Revelation was like, it was championed by the, by the Je- Jesuits in the Catholic Church because the Reformation was saying the Roman Catholic Church is Mystery Babylon. And so there, were, there was a, one specific Jesuit who developed the preterist interpretation, wrote a book on it, and then it was developed further from there and systematized. And they said, basically, all this stuff happened in the first century. None of it applies anymore. So it's not us. That's the idea there. Um, the futurist interpretation would place Mystery Babylon here as being perhaps the EU, the European Union, uh, maybe the United Nations, uh, some type of one-world government in the future is generally how that would be understood often. Or maybe by like a religious movement that is like a, the ecumenicism to the nth degree and uh, basically just kind of like uh, moral relativism and if you believe it, then it's true and all paths lead to God. So, you know, in that interpretation, Oprah Winfrey is going to be the, uh, the beast and just joking. But it's kind of the idea. So that's, that's the... Um, that's the futurist, like, roughly speaking, interpretation. I'm kind of trying to summarize some big ideas here, right? I, I would encourage you, go read about this. Um, there are lots of great books about it. You can read up on the internet. Of course, everything you read on the internet is true. So, you know, go read, 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 read history on the internet and learn everything you need to know there. Wikipedia is a great place to start. Infallible. Wikipedia is just infallible. So, that's a good place to learn more. I'm just kind of giving you an overview here, right? And then the, uh, the fourth interpretation... Okay, I, I, I'll share with you, you know, I personally, I hold to two interpretations. I think, I, I hold to the futurist interpretation that some of these things are still going to take place in the future. I also hold to the historic interpretation, which is the one I'll give you right now in greater detail, the one that was held by the early Protestant leaders, uh, because I think it lines up with a lot of stuff. In the, uh, in the historic interpretation... 
the uh, mystery Babylon was understood to be the church as it apostatized, as it became a state religion, as it, as it welcomed the p- practices of the nations, as it incorporated Greek philosophy, as it became less and less Bible-based, and more and more, let's just try and adopt all of the culture that we can so that we can lower the entry level as low as we can so that we can get as many people in the church building as we can. That's what began happening in Constantine's, era, uh, Constantine's reign in the, third, in the 300s. Eh? So in the historic interpretation, Mystery Babylon has already been going for a long time. She was, already, she was already going hard in the 300s and Constantine really helped to galvanize that. Um, some people would say Constantine was a great saint. Unfortunately, there were a lot of believers that were martyred under Constantine's reign because they did not agree with him. He was also a vicious anti-Semite. He refused to let any Jewish believers be part of those early church councils that determined the, forna- the formation of his universal church. Does anybody know what uh, the Latin word for uh, universal is? Catholic. Yeah. Okay, now as I say this, I just want to say we're talking about ideas here. We're talking about systems. I'm not talking about people, other than Constantine, because he was verifiably a bad dude. Um, Like, okay, there are Catholic people today, right? I have have friends, I have very close friends who are Catholic, and I admire them for their devotion. They're good people. And I just, you know, as we're talking about some of these things, I'm talking about systems here and ideas. I'm not talking about people, okay? So, like, I, I love everybody. I love people, and I'm not a hater. But at the same time, these are chapters in the Bible that we need to take seriously. We need to be saying, God, what is this all about, and what are you saying through this? And we also, if we come from a charismatic or evangelical or Protestant background, you need to know your history. I'm sorry to say this, but most Protestants today have no clue where they came from or how they got there. They do not know their history. Um, sometimes in evangelicalism or charis- the charismatic movement, we know a little bit more about our history because it was a little more recent. But even then, like, I, it, it, it's sad. Most people don't know why they're Protestants. Most people don't know why the Protestant movement seceded from the Catholic Church. These are things people need to know. Um, you know, like, I, I, I love the body of Christ here in Prince Albert. Um, I'm involved in the ministerial, so I gather like on a monthly basis with people from many denominations with whom I have severe theological differences like Anglican or Catholic or, or Orthodox. And I love these men, you know. I talk with them. We, we smile at each other. But that, doesn't, but that doesn't affect how I interpret the Bible. It doesn't stop me from reading history. And it doesn't stop me from drawing conclusions based on what, what, I, what I read, right? So I, just, I, wa- I want to say that really clearly, okay? Um, Let's look at a couple... Okay, here's a question. Why would the Reformers, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, John Knox, believe that the Roman Catholic Church was Mystery Babylon? This is just a historical fact, okay? Why would they believe that? What were their conclusions that led them to that? Let's just look at these chapters and see what what, what they would read in there that might suggest um, such things. I'll I'll give you some highlights here. It says, okay, that she's not just political. In verse 2, we can infer she's not just a political organization. She's religious, like some kind of spiritual entity, because it says that she's a woman, which represents a spiritual entity, and the kings of the earth, i.e. political heads of state, collaborate with her. 
So political heads of nation states collaborate with her. So she's bigger than just a nation. She's bigger than a political organization. Um, it also says in verse 1, she sits on many waters. It goes on in, later in this, in, these, uh, in this passage to say that waters equal nations and states. So she's, like, she's in control of or has influence over many nations and, and nation states. Um, it goes on in 17 verse 5 to, as we read already, like say that she's the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So there's a lot of disgusting stuff that's generated by this entity and that comes into the world um, through, through her. In um, verse 6, this is a big clue. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, God's holy people, and with the blood of the witnesses of Yeshua. So this either has been or will be an entity that is intent on killing people that are witnesses of Yeshua and that disagree with her. Um, the reformers in the 1500s saw that firsthand. Um, the Jewish people did too. In the Inquisitions, there were so many people killed. Like, women lost their husbands. They watched them burned at the stake. Kids lost their parents because there was a religious system that couldn't handle anybody disagreeing with it, that couldn't even handle people reading the Bible in their own language. Okay, this is what the Reformers were seeing. If you read historically about movements like the Waldensian movement, the Waldensian movement was a group of believers in Yeshua who just did their thing, read the Bible in their own language, and they were long, around for a really long time. Some people believe they were a movement that was descended from the original churches that Paul planted. The Waldensians were wiped out by the Roman Catholic Church, just murdered en masse in the 1300s, 1400s. All right? So um, these, these were historical events that, that, were, um, that the re- early reformers were watching. It goes on to say in verse 9... Here's the mind which has wisdom. So everybody, put on your, your, your wise cap, okay? Put on your wise cap for a second. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. I'm going to give you one more verse here, and we'll tie those together. Revelation chapter 17, verse 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay? So get that. The woman is a city... She reigns over the kings of the earth, over nation states. She's an empire. In John's time, which city was that? That was Rome in John's time. Okay. Here it says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So this city sits on seven mountains. Historically, has there been a city that was known as being the city that sits on seven mountains? Yes. Rome was known as the city that sits on seven mountains. Um, The emperor Vespasian in approximately 70 CE, actually had coins minted of Rome pictured as a woman sitting on seven hills. There are seven specific hills that the city of Rome sits on. Okay? So, duh. The early reformers read this. They're like, we know historically which city sat on seven hills. That's got to be Rome. Uh, therefore, what would, they, what would they infer? Rome kind of went under in the, like the whatever, 300s with their barbarian incursions. She resurfaced, almost like being resurrected, as a religious entity, as the, universal, the Roman universal uh, church. So that's, that's why the, the early reformers drew that conclusion. Um, I, we could go into some other things here too, just briefly. As, as John pointed out in verse 4, it says she's clothed in purple and scarlet. These are the classic colors that um, Roman Catholic clergy wear. Both of these for certain instances. 
uh, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was absolutely wealthy and is absolutely wealthy. Uh, gorgeous cathedrals, like architecturally speaking and just in terms of aesthetics, gorgeous cathedrals. But those cathedrals are often built on the backs of peasants who labored for decades with no recompense so they could be built. Anyway, it's kind of maybe that idea, like super fancy, right? And then it says, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, one of the unclean things of her immorality. The early reformers understood that as the cup of the mass. Okay, I'm giving you history. I'm just giving you how the Protestant movement started and how they read these chapters, okay? They understood that to be the cup of the mass because in the mass, Christ is re-sacrificed in every mass. He wasn't sacrificed once for all. He continues to be sacrificed And when you take the Mass, you are literally ingesting Him. It doesn't matter if you're unrepentant or not. It doesn't matter if you have a hard heart. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. You're just, it's like something that automatically administers grace, is the idea. And um, the early Reformers saw that as being something that was, um, what does it say here? Like an abomination. Right? Um, So here's, here's here's my personal understanding. I, I, I think the early reformers had a very strong case to say that Mystery Babylon was Rome and the new, the, the, the new form of Rome in the Roman Catholic Church. I think they have a very strong case for that and I agree with them on that. I also believe that these chapters have yet to be fulfilled and that we will see things like world government, a literal three and a half year period of time, etc. So I'm historic and I'm futurist. And I'm symbolic because I really believe in getting the symbolic interpretation because that's what applies to us today also, eh? So that's, that's my take. Um, on a practical level, uh, I'll finish looking at this verse with you and then if we want we can talk about some of this. In Revelation chapter 18, it goes on to describe her total destruction, like massive economic collapse, etc. And um, it says in verse 4, this is, this is to be the response of Yeshua's people. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Why? So that you won't participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Okay, so if it's true, if the Roman Catholic system is Mystery Babylon or was, then the prophetic call to the body of Christ today is come out of that system for two reasons. So you won't do what she's doing and thereby participate in her sins. And so that when the plagues start hitting planet Earth you'll be safe. You'll be with, on the right side. You'll be with the right people. You won't be echoing bad theology and false teachers, etc., etc. Right? That's the response. Um, I'll give you one more thought along those lines. The essence of Babylon is mixture. The essence of Babylon is syncretism. And if you read church history, the first several centuries of church history, there was, there was a side that was epic, that was heroic, that was awesome. People laid down their lives for Yeshua. They had passion for Him. They preached the Gospel. They flipped the Roman Empire. Wow, that is our heritage and that's good. But there's another side that we have to examine where we as believers allowed pagan practices to come in. Where we allowed pagan terminology to enter our vocabulary. Where we forsook the ways of God that He gave His people Israel forever. And we, we, we just made stuff up. And we syncretized stuff. Like really, 
the name Easter. Is that in the Bible? Where do you think that came from? That's from a pagan religion. How did it happen that a billion people every year celebrate the resurrection of Messiah and call it after the name of a disgusting pagan sex goddess? Like, really, have you ever asked yourself that? Like, do you think God's happy about that? Do you think, or do you think Satan's happy about that? The resurrection was a holy event. I, I think that could be a very small example of Babylon on a functional level. It sneaks into our terminology. It sneaks into our practices until we're doing stuff that is just not in the Bible. So, you know, if, the, if there was any cry from the Holy Spirit, I believe it's the same today as it was in the 1500s. Let's get back to the Word and let's do the Word and let's believe every verse in the Word. And if, if we have practices that aren't in the Word, then let's, let's really examine those closely and see where they came from and get in return to the Bible. And if there's anti-Semitism that has caused certain practices to spring up, let's forsake the anti-Semitism and let's realize that whether we're from Jewish or Gentile backgrounds, you are part of the people of Israel. You are part of the commonwealth of Israel. So if you see yourself only as a Gentile and not as grafted into Israel, not as joined with the Jewish people, then you have a false identity. And you need to accept the identity that Yeshua gives you in Him through faith. And you know what? Maybe that does involve returning to some of the ways of God and the biblical practices that He gave in the Old Testament. I believe it does. Um, that's what, why we're here. That's what this is all about. So ask your... I, I would leave you with this thought. Um, in, in this upcoming year, don't just do stuff because you've always done it. Don't just use terminology because you've always used it. Stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why do I use these terms? Could it be that this is part of Babylon? Could it be that this is an area where I could change and I could walk away and leave that behind? I, I, I leave you with that. And you know what? We don't have to do that by ourselves. Like Yeshua is in our midst and He is saving us as a people from our sins. And just like Moses brought Israel out of Egypt, Yeshua is bringing His people out of whatever mystery Babylon is. So you know what? As we listen to Him, as we study the Word, as we apply it to our lives, and as we let the Holy Spirit lead us step by step by step, we will find every step taking us farther out of Egypt, farther out of Babylon, farther out of religious systems or world systems that, are, that God says are gross, and we will find ourselves walking farther into the wilderness with Him to receive the revelation of Him as the people of Israel did at Mount Sinai. It's, it's happening, and it's going to happen. He's taking us somewhere. So I, uh, that, I'll give you an example. That's why I do the biblical festivals, okay? That's why I re- respectfully abstain from things like a Sunday Sabbath or Christmas or Easter. I'm sorry, but they are, we, we got those things from the Roman Catholic system. And, um, you know, my dad was a pastor, and my grandpa was a pastor, in, in the evangelical church. So, you know, I, I have a very strong appreciation for our evangelical heritage and our Protestant background, for those of us who have that. But at the same time, I believe in being honest and I don't believe the Reformation's over. I don't believe that God even is calling us just to reform the Catholic system. I believe He's calling us to be part of His revolution where He revolves us, He turns us around and He brings us back to all of His covenants and to His word in its totality. Did you notice that there's a difference between a reformation, reforming the Catholic system, and a revolution? And I am in a revolution, and if you're in this community and you're going where we're going, you're in a revolution. 
And what that means is you're turning around and you're going back. You're revolving. You're turning around and you're going back. Yeah, that's the idea there. Um, I, I really honor the early Protestant reformers. I honor what they did. Many of them laid down their lives so that for doctrines like justification by faith, um, immersion in water as an adult by choice, having the Bible in our own language, things that we take for granted. These men died for these things. They were burned at the stake. That's excruciating. Their families lost their dads because their dads stood up for truth. And the Roman Catholic Church like, killed them. Okay? So I honor that. But at the same time, I don't feel like they took it all the way. It's like it was Reformed Catholicism. So it's like we will change in terms of some of our doctrine and how we think, but we'll still hold on to a Sunday Sabbath, which is not biblical. We will hold on to celebrations like Good Friday, Easter, Christmas, etc. So, you know, I'm, as I'm saying that, I'm just saying, historically, I don't feel like the Reformers took their own operating principle to a completion. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's calling us as the body of Messiah to do that today. Okay? So you can tell this is something I'm passionate about. Um, this is something that I feel I'm hearing from Yeshua. Um, this is something that I see in history. So I feel like there's some historical precedent for this. At the same time, like, I'm really cautious when it comes to stuff like this. Because it is possible to be paganoid. It's possible to be so scared about anything pagan in our lives that we just can't do anything or talk because something might be pagan. I'm not that, okay? But at the same time, the Holy Spirit's calling us back. I'll give you another example. Um, Hebrew terminology. The apostles did use Greek terminology when they were speaking to Greek audiences. Like, there's no evidence that the apostles always said Yeshua. There's very strong evidence that they, when they were in a Greek country, they called him Jesus, or however you say it in Greek, okay? So there is that side. So, like, I, I'm, I don't have major problems with terms like Jesus, or Lord, or God. But at the same time, I feel that there's something better. I feel that using the term Yeshua is better because it, accurate, it more accurately communicates who He is, and it more accurately reflects the movement that we're a part of. Calling him God, okay, you know, in our culture, that's kind of understandable. It means the deity, the guy who created the universe, he's really powerful and stuff. But at the same time, that can kind of be a homogenous term. I would encourage you, don't just call him God. Call him by his name. God has a name, Yahweh. When you start talking about Yahweh, it's like, oh, that's the God of Israel. You know? Um, even, I would encourage you, start getting in touch with his other Hebrew titles. Like um, Elohim. That's a very meaningful title. It means the Almighty. Right? And there's so many other ones. Um, yeah, you know, we can, we can get into more of that. But these are just some areas where I feel that we can begin changing and we can begin overhauling what we do, how we talk, stuff like that, as His Spirit leads, by His grace. And may it never be a thing of legalism, may it never be a thing of bondage, may it always be a thing of freedom, a thing of joy, something that is life to our spirits, and something that's all about Yeshua and His salvation. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.